0: Well, 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 well. What a week, what a week, what a week. Right, so the documentary is out, uh, and in the course of understanding the history of and Records, it's come to my attention that the 27th of February is the label's birthday. As such, uh, I have threw together a quick reunion call with some of the key contributors to that first chapter. Uh, so this is uh, Steve Ricardo, Dennis Klute, Ed Von Sell, and Metal Mike from Outer Magazine. Uh, I just thought it'd be a nice way to commemorate the, the label's birthday because I don't think many people outside of this podcast actually know it's his birthday. So let's just jump straight into it and celebrate. Raise a glass. Long live Roadrunner. Hello? Yeah. Hello, yeah.
1: hello. <laughs> you right. Does Metal Mike remember that we were roommates in uh, 1987 at Can? Yeah, when you walked up to that hooker I thought it was Monty, it was you Yeah, by the time I got back to America Warren Wyatt started a rumor That I picked up a prostitute Took her to my room And found out she had a dick Well,
2: that's not true Because we were walking on the Rue de la Croisette in Cannes And Warren Wyatt is an asshole By the way You said it, not me yeah, well, he owes so many people money. I mean, I, I, I once I had a, a band playing one of my festivals, Saigon Kick, so I sent him money for the band and uh, to fly over from Florida, and uh, he just shelved the money in
1: his own pocket, and the band never showed up at the festival. You know, I worked with Saigon Kick, the Third Stone Atlantic deal. I was involved in, in that deal. I had to deal with Warren White on a regular basis. So uh, I remember. He also had, what was that band? Crimson Glory, right? Yeah, I signed them to Roadrunner in 86.
2: But the funny thing was, I was at the Button's house and. I think Hallandale or Hollywood, somewhere in Florida. And I just flew in from the Netherlands because I uh, went down to, I think, to Tampa, Clearwater Beach, actually, to uh, meet Dan Johnson, the producer of Crimson War. Yeah, World. I know Dan, yeah. And so I, was, I, mean, I just flew in. And at midnight at the Button South, the club, the show of Saigon Kickstarted, but I just flew in for me. It was six o'clock in the morning. So I was really tired. So I was sitting at the bar and next to me were J- uh, Dave Felt and Jason Flom. And they were there that night to check
1: out the band to sign them to Atlantic. Yeah, what happened was, is I worked for Third Stone Music, right? Mm-hmm. And Atlanta came to us and said, we kind of like this band. We can't sign them. Will you guys sign them? So we went to Florida and we checked them out. We ended up doing the deal. They had a gold record, so it yeah, worked, worked out pretty
2: good. Yeah, I have one uh, hanging on the wall for a Love Is On The Way, I think the single was.
1: Right. That was a big single here, too. Yeah,
2: yeah. I, I did their first shows in Europe, uh, Dynamo Open Air Festival. and so. But I wanted to have them on my own, Archer Festival, and then Warren Wyatt, you know, put the money in his own pocket, and
1: I stopped working with him. I can understand that. <laughs> <laughs> wow, it's been a long time. You know, we met each other 33 years ago. 87 or 88, I think, or maybe... Yep. Was it around that? We were roommates, man. We shared oh, all yeah, the-
2: I know I know that shitty hotel with the iron uh, elevator, the the, the gate, iron gated. I remember now, but, I, of course, Monty, I think that was 86. And you were one or two years later at the uh, – I've been there like 12 years in a row for Roadrunner to, uh, you know, at uh, working at the booth and uh, listening to all the cassette tapes the bands were shoveling in and stuff, you know, and send them away with a smile and uh, – were, you, were, were we together when we met Davy Jones? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I, w- I talked to him at the at the at the Martinez bar, and I yeah. told him, you know, is it uh, so? It's your fault that David Bowie had to uh, change his name. <laughs> That's what I told him. He was, you he probably heard a thousand times. Yeah, before. I think I heard that
0: in the interview that you did. Hi, Jim. Okay. How are you? Hello, mate. <laughs> not too bad. Thanks, yourself. <laughs> Good. Are we waiting for Ed? Uh, yeah, Ed's just messaging me now. Dennis is on his way on on Zoom. He's going to log in on his phone, so we'll see how that goes. Um, I
1: apologize. I thought it was
0: noon. I'm on the East Coast in the States, and I thought it was noon. It's cool. I, I, I said I'd try and get it around noon, um, but I know uh, Mike has his dinner around about 6, so I thought i will bring it back for him. Thank you. Mike, gets top
1: <laughs> preference. I, I understand. Yeah, I would say. Yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> should I put on
2: my crown now or should I? will save it for later. <laughs> okay.
1: I have really good memories of you, man. We had a lot of good fun, man. I was only a roadrunner for a short period of time because huh? I got I got booted. But, you know, I had fun while I was here. Are you doing stuff for Nuclear Blast now? Or? No, I'm like uh, the only – I'm not working for a label anymore now. I haven't worked for labels in quite a while. I just do a podcast. And a radio show. Okay.
2: It's I, still a have a weekly, I still have a weekly radio show, and I still do my magazine. Actually, I'm almost finishing the magazine right now. But I might, I might skip it for a week before releasing it because the stores are still closed here, you know. I print magazines, send it to my subscribers, and it won't be in the shops for sale. So I sell a shitload online. People order it online because it's not in the stores. But still, you know, you print magazines for a distributor, and it's just lying there, you know, yeah. on pallets. So that's that's a bummer right now. So I might skip a week before releasing the new one. I almost finished. Um, so because you know, if it's you know, if they prolong the lockdown or the let's say the the, the shop is shut down. Uh, the lockdown was not so bad. I mean, I'll I'll work from inside anyway, 24-7. But, uh, you know, people have to be able to go, you know, to a train station and get the magazine out of the stands and stuff. Otherwise, you know, you print a magazine for nothing. Right.
3: So. Hi, Dennis. Hi. <laughs> Hi.
2: How are you doing? Hey, Dennis
0: Klute. Hey. <laughs> hey, Al Maka. Ever hey, since is- um, you mentioned him, Mike, I've been looking for him for four months. And yeah. just last week, or the week before, I well, found he, him. He fled away to Indonesia last time I saw him.
4: Yeah, no, I'm, I know. I I I mean, I was thirty years.
2: Yeah, you, you yeah. started.
4: Uh, was it Dino Records with your brother? No, that that was uh, that. They're still in Holland. So, I mean, Peter's Music Factory. I I ran, I ran Peter's Music Factory here in Indonesia for him but that didn't work that well. Okay. But you, you, I, didn't you work with your, with your brother together in Indonesia? No, no, no. no. I'm alone. I'm here okay. alone. Okay. I have have a golf business here. Okay, that's good. What's your handicap? <laughs>
2: uh 8.
0: <laughs> oh, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> uh, Steve meet Dennis Clute. Clute uh, Dennis Clute meet Steve Ricardo. Um, Dennis. Dennis was the first roadrunner employee um, and Steve was the first slash second 1.5 um, in, in the American office. Yeah.
4: I, the Amsterdam office with case. Yeah. yeah. The Willem yeah. spark. The first. Yeah. You, you yeah. were, were you there Dennis in 1987? I was uh, no, 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 no. I was there in 1983 and I was there for nearly two years.
1: Okay. I missed, I came after. Yeah, I know. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, th- I can. Oh,
0: obviously, I since you were the first one, obviously I came out. <laughs> I think I fucked up in the video because I say, to that you worked from eighty six to eighty seven, I think. But I think ev- your timeline is all within eighty seven, if I'm not mistaken.
1: It was actually. No, it was eighty six and eighty. Oh, was I, I got there in October
0: eighty six. Eighty six. Right. Yeah. Right. Right. Oh well, thanks. Yeah for joining i 'll give like a brief introduction the,
1: the reason I asked about eighty seven is because I went to Amsterdam and I spent a week in the office in eighty seven but i can 't remember every I know there were guys there I think ed that 's coming yeah. on was one of the guys that was taking me to the red light district every night because i 'd never been there you, you if you uh, so it was quite an experience. I think the office was
2: then located in the Van Egenstraat next uh, to the Vondel, uh what's it, the park. Um, so that was where the, the ground floor was Roadrunner and the first floor I had my uh, Archuk Metal Hammer office located, one floor up. Well, and doing so. also the a r and PR for Roadrunner at the same time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: That I was don't... in the uh, Van Egenstraat. I will. um, It's just occurred to me as well that um, uh, Mike. I don't know if you noticed, but Steve signed the Great Cat. My condolences. Are you trying to start
1: trouble already? I told you I would get on this call, and now you're picking on me already. Thanks.
2: I'm not picking on you. You know, whenever I never had a normal conversation with with the Great Cat because. Um the volume of her
1: mouth is a bit different than what normal people would use. What? Did you say something? <laughs> Believe me, I had to talk to her regularly. I know exactly what you're talking about. There was not talking, it was yelling usually, you know. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. S- such a, a small tiny, uh, such a short girl, such a big mouth. <laughs> <laughs> she's still around, I was just on Twitter and I saw all her she posts about 10 posts every day, you know it's yeah, like, really, uh, the 255th birthday of
0: Beethoven or whatever she won't speak <laughs> to me anymore after I did that mini documentary on her uh, you're not the only yeah. one, I mean I
1: don't think she speaks to half of the world, more than yeah. half of the world I mean it's like
2: Actually I I only met her once in person. Uh I was walking up the stairs in uh, Dortmund where the metal hammer offices was and she walked in there uh, for an interview and she only said one line in the office, "Why am I not on the cover?" and she left out the door and just when she was walking down the stairs out the door, I walked in there because I knew she was there, you know, I wanted to meet her. And so I uh, you know, I, I yelled, or She yelled at me for a minute and then uh, that was it
0: well um thanks everyone for joining because i know this is a bit impromptu and a bit unorthodox. it's not like an interview format but i think what i've done is i've i don't think i'm taking any liberties here from what i can gather Jan van der linden got the shares from case for road and productions bv on the 27th of february 1981 that's 40 years this coming saturday so as the only person on the planet who's bothered to read up that far back i feel i'm in, in a position to say yeah that's when the label started <laughs> So I think oh. it's about right. And um I'm 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 satisfied with it. So I thought it might just be a a, a nice way to, to commemorate that by having a mini party with those who are around that nineteen eighty through to eighty six period. So thank you very, very much. And Mike's gone overboard with the banners and, and over delivered as <laughs> usual. <laughs>
2: Yeah, when they moved offices or, um, you know, they were throwing stuff away and uh, I got some of the banners and I thought I'd hang one up behind me, you know, to make it more homey for you
0: guys. (laughs) Thank you very much. But where are
4: you now?
2: Me? Yeah. I'm in the Netherlands in a a town called Sonnenbrugel, just two miles uh, north of Eindhoven, where I run my
4: magazine already for 41 years. Great, great. You know, I started with Or.
2: I know. Oh, you wrote you were writing for because I always was in contact with Case Byers and then Hans der Hoepel, who were definitely the, yep. the hard rock writers there.
4: Yeah, yeah. I, I joined Byron Byron when he set up Or in his flat in Amsterdam in Amsterdam. Okay. North. And then and then we moved on to uh, to um, the Haarlemmer town in Amsterdam.
2: Okay. Let me switch on some lights here because getting dark <laughs>
4: bye Mike <laughs> so where's Ed
0: <laughs> where's uh, uh sorry Ed was is in traffic in Amsterdam he'll be joining us shortly okay uh, Mike when was the last time you saw Dennis in person Dennis Clouton maybe uh maybe 1984
4: yeah 30 more than 30 yeah nearly well, no, more than 30 years 36 years yeah Sure.
1: Yeah, I'm um, not like
2: a math important. expert, I'm just helping. No, because he 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 moved to Indonesia, I think, uh, around that time. I'm not sure. In, maybe In
4: 87.
2: Oh, yeah, well, okay, it was 87. And maybe I, show, I saw you that year on a festival or so. I don't know, but. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. Uh,
4: and, and I, I was looking after Billy Preston in those days.
2: Who is she?
1: <laughs> Billy <laughs> Preston. I'm a metalhead man I'm a (laughs) (laughs) Um, metalhead I like Billy Preston (laughs) I liked Billy Preston he's no longer with us but I liked him
4: yeah he was a great guy he was difficult to work with but he was a great guy
2: I think the biggest selling act around that time for Roadrunner was Jim Croce
4: right the Canadian yeah and the nylons and the nylons okay Nylons. I I still have my golden record here. Okay. But that's only for fifty thousand uh, copies, and eventually they sold more than a hundred thousand copies.
2: Okay. It's
0: one yeah. thing I'm going to try and lean on when I do like the next stage of the research. Because now the next period I'm going to look at is sort of 1987 onwards. And one thing you spot in that period is, even though Case is trying to drive those bands, those typo negatives and sample he's trying to drive them forward. He's—I know his mission was to get a gold record in the United States because that's. A, I mean, I, I don't work in the industry, so I don't know if that's the most prestigious thing you can do. But platinum, platinum's higher than yeah, gold. Yeah. The, but. <laughs> the very nuts and bolts of Roadrunners' business was still very much licensing, even at that period. If you look on the Discogs page, it's just still racks and racks of really off-piste records, which you wouldn't expect Roadrunners to be putting out. So in 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 my head, it was it, I thought it'd be good to go down that route because even though typos, bloody kisses being the, the first gold record for the label is like a monumental part of, of that story... Dennis has a Roadrunner gold record hanging up in his office from 1987. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it, it's just interesting to me that, again, we, we get the, the prolific bands that we all know and love from a metal perspective, but it really it, was that that other stuff which really catalyzed
4: me. the the Roadrunner road record with an attic label.
0: Yeah. Um, this ties into your story, Mike, about bringing... Um, is It Hard and Heavy to Case?
2: Um... Well, I told you before, um, I didn't know of the existence of a guy called Sage Wessels. Until I know, I stumbled onto a onto a record in Port Vale when I was buying my new wave of British heavy metal singles at a warehouse in the middle of England. And a box came in with the Anvil Hard and Heavy record on Ethic Records. I stole the shipping letter, which was in the box when I bought the album. I called the the phone number on the on the shipping. It was Al Mayer, Alexander Mayer. And he yeah. said he, had, he was in uh, contact with a guy in Hilversum wanted to start a record company, Say's Wessels. So I drove down there and I had to give my vinyl copy of that record to that guy. And uh, Al Mayer sent me a new copy. So yeah. that's how I got in touch with says Wessels the first time. And Al
4: Mayer had a band called Anvil on his label.
2: Yeah, that's the record I was given. Hard and happy huh? by the band Anvil. Actually, Anvil... They, uh, half a year before, they had the same a record out under the band named Lips, uh, the name oh. of the singer, but they changed it to Anvil, and that was actually the second pressing of the same record. But that first pressing was never
1: released in Europe. Somebody just sent me this t shirt not too long ago. Oh, it's a tank t shirt. And it's got <laughs> like all the uh, bands on the back. I don't know if you could see that. Yeah, I see yeah. Nice. I know most of the actually we just did uh I think four
2: months or five months in a row we did uh a special in Artshock about all those new wave of British heavy metal bands. Uh because I did shows with all those bands, you know. I did and you I did uh, I did the Raven shows, the Venom, uh Fist, Tigers of Pantang, Jaguar, Satan. So um, I was working with all those bands, book, booking them into clubs because they didn't have a lot of work to do in England, but they were really popular in Germany, in the, the Netherlands, and Belgium.
1: So I, uh, I wasn't... When I to, when I, sorry, sorry. Uh, when I worked at Metal Blade, we put out that double album, uh, the new wave of British heavy metal. Lars from Metallica actually sequenced a record for us. I had to talk to him on the phone a few times. Brian Slagle, Let Me Deal With Lars, that was fun. And he sequenced the album, you know, Diamond Head and all those bands from that era. It was a pretty cool record. Yep. Yeah,
2: I have a lot of stories about those bands to tell, but I'm still in touch with all the most of those guys, I mean, even if the bands don't exist anymore. I mean, Raven still crashes uh, in my place here when they're on tour, and, you know, they want to save some money in hotels or something. So I'll see those guys. Uh, well, not, not this year, of course, or last year.
0: But uh, normally, yeah, I'll see those guys. Mike, did you have any connection with a guy called Terry Gavigan? Who? Terry Gavigan of Guardian Records. Uh, I visited him in, um, I think, in Durham. That's right, yeah.
2: Um, I, I've been to his place because uh, I was buying all the stuff for, of his bands, like holocaust Holoco- no, sorry. Hol- um, Holocron, is it? Uh, Helen Beck was the first Hellenbeck. one, and Hollow Ground, and Mitra. Those were the three main bands on Guardian Records. So I, I visited his place because it was only like 30 miles south of Newcastle, and in Newcastle was uh, Neat Records, and I did a lot of work with Neat Records with their bands, and also selling the seven-inch singles through the magazines in the early years when they didn't have,
0: when they didn't, when they weren't tied with Roadrunner yet well tied to Roadrunner yeah I was was trying to make a connection in in terms of because obviously Case isn't a metal led by by passion he's a metal led by sort of connection and by networking through his days at Polygram and Mercury and the stuff he did with Dennis so I was trying to figure out how he'd get all his bands and it it looks like when it came to Neat Records if you were a band up in the northeast of England you'd probably try and knock on Dave Hill's door is it Dave Hill? Um, from Neat Records and um if they turned you down, you'd self-finance your album through tele- Terry Gavigan at Guardian. And it just as it happens, Terry Gavigan was mates with Case. And Terry wasn't really much of a label guy. He owned a studio, and that's how, that was his business. But he yep. took like a managerial, g- uh, managerial role and basically sent those bands over to Case and said, if you fancy these, these guys are all right. They're working at my studio. And quite a lot of those 1st lineup uh, that first road on a roster comes from Terry Gavigan.
2: Understand. Okay. Well, Roadrunner put out the Hellenbeck record, but that was then through uh, licensing through Neat Records, because well, I think R- R- Roadrunner never put out an album directly from uh, that was signed to uh, Guardian.
0: No, no. Well, but, but what I'm saying is, the, the, you'd have like an EP or some releases signed to Guardian, but they would eventually be Roadrunner direct signings. Okay. Yeah. In in the in the most case, Satan's the exception. Satan is the. Satan rele- oh, I don't know what Satan did, actually. They might have released their first EP on Guardian and then did Court in the Act on Roadrunner.
2: Yeah, Court in the Act was only on Roadrunner. That was funny. They uh, did they did their first European tour starting at the uh, Dynamo in the Netherlands, and they never heard of a Carnet in their life. So they were held at the border. And my father had to um, grant or something, um, you know, uh, to the... Um, how was it, like uh, the customs, he had to um, vouch with his uh, story. he had so the Satan could enter the country with all their gear and backline and stuff on the, on the court in the act tour. Wow.
0: <laughs> so my father made that first tour happen.
2: <laughs> so in, a,
0: in a similar vein, because I'm talking about obviously how Case would acquire these bands without actually knowing them directly and he'd use a network. Do you know how Connie got into the picture on the US side, Steve? Connie
1: Yeah, We have we have to talk about her again. Oh my god! <laughs> I don't think we talked I... about her
0: in our chat, mate. I think we um. I think are we're we reco- out. are you recording this show? I am. Yeah, and it's going to be on YouTube uh, after everyone says what the one taking out. Because I can't tell the story about Connie. <laughs> That's
1: I'm happy to edit it out. I'm, I want to hear it though uh she i I met her because when I started at roadrunner in um october eighty six she was managing Carnivore and whiplash so i I had to i worked with her because of those bands that is when i I believe I told you the story about the first time I met Peter Steele, and he said, "If you fuck my record up i'll kill you and the guy was like a monster, so he kind of intimidated me a little because I'm only five eight and Holly Lane was standing next to me, and she's like, I don't think he's kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but my 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 dealings with Connie were always like, she was just very, you know, wanted to get a lot of things happening for her bands, but I'm not quite sure how much she succeeded with those two bands. Members of those bands obviously went on to bigger and better things. In New York at the time, though, they were pretty... They were like mid-level uh, bands. Um, mm. Did Connie?
0: Why did you bring Connie up? Was it because of that? It was because I was trying to ask the same question to Richard Tamini. Richard Tamini played on. Uh, he produced the four, first Fallout record, Pete Steele's first band. He then played synth uh, as a session player on both Carnival right, right. record and Typo. because um, he was, he was kind of the, he was the Terry Gavigan of this story. He was pretty much like. Flying the flag for Pete's bands wherever it was, and he was working in like uh, with the majors. He ended up playing synth for Girls Just Want to Have Fun. He he had connections there, and they were telling him, "Listen, don't bring carnivore around here, mate. This isn't going to work. It's it's trash." But he was still trying to fight the good fight. So, the story goes, he goes down to CBGB's uh, to take some pictures because he was press at that time. He was a journal, and he meets he meets what's the guy's name who ran CBGB's? Hilly Crystal. Yes. So he speaks to Hill. He says, can we get, you know, this band? They're weird. They've got, like, fur coats. They've got this post-apocalyptic thing going on. He goes, yeah, sure. He speaks to Connie, who was doing, um, having meetings with, I think, Whiplash and doing some work with Ar- Anthrax as well, because Scott Ian's there that day or something. There's all these pictures that Richard sent of that day. Loads of people there. Um, and anyway, she, he speaks to Connie, says, I've got this band called Carnivore. And then the next thing he knows, they're signed to Roadrunner two weeks later. So in... I'm just trying to figure out what happened in that two weeks.
1: I don't know who signed Carnivore to Roadrun. I don't know. They were signed before I got there. Mm-hmm. It mu- I, don't, I don't know. It had to be through through uh, Amsterdam. It wasn't in America. You, uh, Do you know uh, Mike? Yeah. No, I, I, I don't know. I'm, I never heard the band until I got
2: the the, the cassette of their their first songs. I, I don't know. I really don't know how they
4: got him. Probably Jules Kurtz. Yeah, Jules yeah, Cooners Jules yeah. Cooners, the lawyer yeah. Okay well, He brought Case he brought many contacts
1: He did, that's true Because I had to deal with Jules on a regular basis He probably Introduced Connie Barrett To Case right. and they did, did a deal With both the bands You're probably right about that Because yeah. uh, it Jules, wasn't he, live does he Jules, still-
4: and, Jules and Case were very
0: close is he still alive, Jules Kers? No. 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 2013, he passed. Connie yeah, passed so... away as well. She Never. did? She did. did. She? Early 90s. Oh, did. Circumstances, early 90s? Wow. I don't know. I'm talking metal archives here. Yeah. Um, all I know is she passed away in the early 90s. Wow. That, that wasn't very much after I met her, and she was pretty young. Yeah, let's let's put an asterisk on that with the word citation needed. But that's what mm-hmm. I know. Um, so Dennis, what are
4: you... You're talking about weird bands. I used to work for Phonogram with a, with a weird band called the New York Dolls. <laughs> and I traveled with them for like three weeks all over Europe. Yeah. Two days was more than enough. And I spent three weeks with them on the road.
1: You know, I, I worked with them because a band I was managing toured the states with them. Do you know there's only one member left? Sylvain oh. Sylvain passed away about a month one? ago.
4: Wow, they were all very unhealthy guys. Anyway, when <laughs> I worked with them,
1: yeah, they were into smack and stuff. So you know, I mean, they were like heavy
0: drug yeah. users. You, you know? know,
4: every drug, every drug in in the in in the universe. Yeah. yeah.
0: So with your background, Dennis, so you were working with bands like Black Sabbath and you expressed an interest like Nazareth, the Roach, ZZ Top, all those really great sort of traditional... Runaways. Yeah, all those traditional hard rock and sort of proto-metal bands. So what was your impression when Case comes to you and says, right, there's this bloke called King Diamond. Don't be (laughs) cut off by him.
4: (laughs) The the reason why I left Roadrunner basically is because uh, although I was working with these bands like Nazareth, Thin Lizzy, Black Sabbath, uh, uh, New York Dolls, uh, Runaways, and all those bands, Rush, you know, Rush was and Backman Turner Overdrive, they were re- phenomenal bands. But all of a sudden, I had to work with smaller bands and in smaller places, and I don't know. I, I that was a complete different thing for me. I mean. Uh, and 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 in many cases, I was driving the van because there was nobody else.
0: <laughs> nothing, nothing wrong with that, is there, Mike?
4: Um, well, I did the same for
2: Slayer, you know, on the Hell tour, because nobody could drive a stick shift when they came with their <laughs> van. <to> Europe. <laughs> so me and Andre drove th- and them through Europe on the Hell
4: tour. I did, I did. I the first time I drove the 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 van was with the Boomtown Rats. Wow. When they came, when they came to to Amsterdam for the very first time,
1: Dennis, please tell us that you drove the van for the Runaways, because I'd like to hear that story. Well,
4: I, we had a we had a we had a luxurious um, uh, bus for them because the girls were demanding that,
1: and they were like sixteen, probably too, at that time. Yeah. Well, I picked them up. I picked them up. Basically,
4: uh, uh, they arrived in France, in Paris, and then I drove down to Paris with the with the with the bus. It was like a luxurious, beautiful bus, and uh, and then we drove from from Paris two days later to to Amsterdam. And Lita Ford, Joan Jett, uh, they were wild. I mean, <laughs> Jerry tired. Curry. <laughs> yeah, 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 and they were beautiful. Le- Lita Ford, at least, was. I met her wow. two.
2: I met her the first time two years ago at the El Festival, and you sh- she still looks good.
4: Well, I I disagree with you on that. <laughs> I've I've seen a picture of her <laughs> recently. Different. Okay. <laughs> I think Joan Jett looks good. Never still. met her.
1: I get yeah, to then, meet. I get to meet uh, Joan and Lita. They're cool. Joan Jet's one of the coolest people. Oh, she's, she's totally she's cool. cool. Yeah, really cool. And I enjoyed
4: touring with them because they were crazy. They were fucking crazy.
1: Kim Foley wasn't there too, was he? Right. Was he there? Was Kim
0: yes. Foley? Oh my yes,
1: god, was. that must yeah. have been fun.
0: Yeah, he was. Oh, here he comes.
4: Was a, that was one of the bands that Case basically signed up for for Polygram, for Phonogram. Yeah. Through Mercury, if I'm not
0: mistaken. The case of Mercury Day is 74. Yeah. 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 Hey, Dennis. Yeah. As you're in Indonesia, this was
2: the only thing I could salvage when they um, sold all the gold records at... Uh, and Roadrunner. This is for 25,000 cassettes, a gold record for
4: uh, Sample Tour Arise in Indonesia. Oh. In Indonesia, right, with, with Indos Hemarsakti. Yep. That's the that's label. That's the distributor. That was the same distributing company that I had, and, and I connected them with Case.
2: Ah, so this is the only one, because they were selling all their gold and platinum records for a shitload of money. And I did a bit on this one, at least, to have some... Some stuff left from
4: Roadrunner. That is bloody unique, man. Yep. <laughs> that is very
0: unique. <laughs> uh gentleman, Ed Von Sell has is, is entered the, the room. Hello. Hey, Ed. <laughs> hey. Uh, so I'll, I'll, I'll just do a quick, quick in, reintroduction uh, for your benefit, um, Ed. You'll obviously know everyone here, but... Um, I think I'm, I'm not taking any liberties with the dates. I think Jan van der Linden said specifically, he typed it out, 27th of February, 1981. That's when the, the label was born after he acquired 50% of the shares. I think I'm all I'm, I'm all right in saying that that's when the label begun. We're here to celebrate that. Mike has over-delivered by dressing up his office. Um, so, let, so, 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 Steve... Tell me the last time you spoke to Ed. <laughs> Ed, Ed uh, help me out here.
1: In 1987, you were in the Amsterdam office, right?
3: Yeah, I think the last time I saw you uh, face-to-face was in Los Angeles. Weren't, oh. weren't you with Metal Blade later? Yes. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, but I'm, I'm, I'm I'm out, i think, 89. I think in 89, I was in LA, and then uh, I think that's where I met you and, and some of the other uh, Metal Blade guys. Didn't Thank I meet you.
1: you in 1987, or weren't you one of the guys that was taking me to the red light district every night when I was in Amsterdam
3: <laughs> for a week? I've, ne- I've never been there. Uh, <laughs> no, no, okay.
1: Eddie, come on. Hey, that's a, that's a long time ago, man. Yeah, I'm trying I, to remember. I know I a couple of guys.
3: I you remember keys there.
1: There yeah, were a yeah. couple of guys in that office that were taking me out every night. Was there a guy named Jack?
3: No, no, I took you out one night and and I'm pretty sure Louis, pretty sure Louis was there too. Louis Doubler. Louis Louis Doubler, yeah.
1: So one of those guys was in jail, right?
3: Uh, (laughs) No, not that I'm aware of.
1: I'm sorry, man. (laughs) Maybe maybe after. (laughs) (laughs) I forgot I met you in California.
3: How are you, man? It's a long time.
1: Yeah, it's, uh, it's been... Well, you know, that was only uh, 30 years ago, so, you know, yeah. we're bound to not remember every detail.
0: Right. You're good? Yeah. Congratulations on getting Marty Friedman,
3: by the way, Ned. Oh, uh, yeah, thanks. Well, Marty, I know Marty from the same period, I think from 87 or so. so I have yeah. a very long relationship with uh, with Marty. Um, off and on, he's been on another label too in the meantime, of course, but... Um, I think he's one of the most unique players out there.
0: Yeah, definitely. I mean, he's got a story, especially like... I was speaking to Brian Slagle about about Roadrunner and especially what happened when it came to the US and how it affected the, the wider market and things. And one thing we were talking about was the Japanese market. And the Japanese market is incredibly difficult to... Obviously, shut me down if I'm wrong, but probably the Japanese market was incredibly difficult to crack because it's a different consumer culture completely. So over here, we seem to... Especially these days, we value the physical product. We value big, you know, a biggest bang for your buck. But over there is a lot of focus is on the virtuosity of the instrument, and that seems to be where the pivot lies. So, that, and that's where My Freeman comes in because that's where he spent most of his career, right? Uh, yeah, I
3: think so. Yeah. I think so.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is there any truth to Brian's story? He told me when um, he came to Amsterdam to visit. It uh, must have been talking about some licensing arrangements with Case. You guys took him out for a curry. And <laughs> as an American with a rather mild palate. I didn't... think Korean
2: food
3: was Case's uh, trap. <laughs> Japanese,
4: and Japanese and
3: Korean. And I think there was a favorite Indonesian, uh, Tempudulu. In Hello, yeah. in, you...
4: Dennis. Whenever,
3: this is a long yeah. time ago, Dennis. How are you?
4: Yeah, whenever whenever case was in, in Jakarta, we went for the most sumptuous Indonesian meals ever because he, he he's crazy about that too. Yeah. When he's was
0: the last? Sorry, I to say, when was the last time you you saw Ed Dennis? Oh, last. eighties I think.
3: Right, eighty yeah. four. Maybe. was this? No, maybe at him somewhere. I think. Yeah, I meet know. him. Sure, meet
4: him. Yeah.
3: Yeah. I, I, long
4: meet them was always fucking crazy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I remember a nice story. Uh, meet them. We were we were staying. We were going to the bar in the Martinez, right? And uh, I was with Michel Damon. Um, uh, What's the guy who owns um, who owns free record shop? Uh, mm-hmm. The owner. Breukhoven. died? Ah, Hans. Yeah. Hans Breukhoven. Yeah. Anyway, we were three or four guys, and the manager of Saxon, um, because because uh, Michel was looking after Saxon in those days. So we get out of the bar, the Martinez bar, and we go across from the from the Martinez bar, and we hop into another bar, and we start drink, started drinking, and we're like, we're like, we become completely legless drunk. <laughs> we get out of that place and we wanted to go to the Martinez. There's a taxi right on the corner of the bar that we were at. And we get out of the bar and we go into the taxi and the taxi driver says, so where do you want to go? Martinez, we say. <laughs> Martinez bar. And <laughs> the guy gets out and the car opens the doors on the other side and he says, this is the Martinez. <laughs> and 10 minutes, Ten ten meters away from the car. <laughs> How much did he charge you? <laughs> no, we were, I mean, I was on the floor because I thought, holy fuck, <laughs> I mean, that's that stupid. <laughs> so he just opened the door on the other side. He says, this is the Martinez, sir.
2: How <laughs> oh, can you get drunk at the Martinez bar? Beers were 35 pop back in the day.
4: <laughs> yeah, but in those days, we, we had um, expense accounts. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> we were, stay- we Sorry, were staying. We were staying at the at the Martinez, by the way. Nice.
0: Yeah. There was um, a couple of comments in my in my op. Oh, but Wally couldn't make it. Wally Van Bindop um, Oh yeah. But Bloody one
1: thing
0: bucks. that yeah yeah uh, something which you both said um, Ed and Wally who obviously in here about certain innovations that the label tried to sort of push. Wally said that. It was the first place he'd worked, and to the, his knowledge, the first place he knew to have a, a computer network as part of, of the office. Oh yeah, yep. How did that come? Did, was Case just particularly, um, you know, enthusiastic about new technology?
4: Yeah, but Case was like that. Case wanted to have it all installed.
0: Yeah. To what to what end, though? Couldn't he keep the – couldn't the accountant just use his normal books and couldn't he just – Well, the accountant was a
4: guy called Han De Waal, And he did oh. everything manual. In mm. case said, fuck off. I mean, get a computer.
0: And similarly, Ed, you mentioned um, that Roadrunner was one of the first labels to push CDs or at least one of the first metal labels. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to focus more on that in the video, but I, there was just no space for it. But I did have a look around, and I think they're called, I think the, oh Christ, what are they call called now. I think they're called the Slimline Collection. There's yes. like a, a collector's circle called the Slim Slimline Collectors. Yeah. And they're all going for like, it could be just a, oh, here you go. Mike's going to bring out the whole box full of them. <laughs> <laughs> did
4: you know me? <laughs> like the banner, Mike.
2: Yeah, I'll, I'll grab some. Hold on, let me let me uh, put on a switch on
0: an extra light here. <laughs> they're going for like must be upwards of a hundred pounds each. Some going up to about three hundred and fifty pounds. Wow! Really? Yeah. So Mike no,
1: just worked. went on disc. <laughs> Mike
0: just went on discogs. He's
1: selling them right now. He'll be right back in about five minutes. <laughs> oh, man. I have so much
2: rare stuff. You won't believe. Then this this is not even the rare stuff
4: wow that's nice man the banner i like the banner i mentioned Mike is up to the red light district
2: yeah these are the slim lines the the funny thing is i think you could open them in like two parts and they weren't like you see like this oh wow oh yeah, Bottom yeah. went up up like this this by the way metal on metal the i think the second
3: yeah nice uh
2: anvil record wow but it was it looked shitty. I mean, this is like this, uh, the track listing is with a sticker on the on the on the hard plastic. Uh, this okay, the CD is normal, but wow. the booklet is the same. But for you know, it's Does I the think world... he uh, says got the idea from uh, the Japanese people.
0: They mm-hmm. came to him with this uh, kind of uh, packaging. Another thing that I left on the cutting room floor was um, I know his wife was quite big on Japanese art. Um, oh yeah, and had been for some time so and one of the other remarkable things about roadrunner which again i don't really focus on is they licensed out to the far east through the far east metal syndicate which i think is pretty it's, it's quite remarkable especially in like th- those earlier days of an indie indie label to like push metal all the way out to japan so i think that's i think that's my tinfoil hat theory that that's the connection there as you say it's from japan and that was where the connection was made
3: they were manufactured in uh, Japan, those CDs. Yeah. And I think there was also probably, you know, maybe an exchange, because as far as I know, uh, no, there wasn't a the case, you know, loudness. Uh,
2: Aki Morashita, didn't he do that? Aki Morashita, was it Apollon Records or something? Who did it in Japan? Yeah, China?
3: that could be Apollon, yeah. Correct, Apollon,
2: <clears throat> yeah. Because I signed Arian to them. Arian Lucas had told me... Uh, a few months ago. I didn't even know I signed the Bench for him in Japan for the first record. I
0: forgot to, I totally forgot about that one. Here's one thing I forgot to ask you, Mike, what other than Crimson Glory, who did you sign to Roadrunner when you had your a cap on?
2: I don't know. I mean, it, I mean, I did, I did so much for the label when I wasn't working for the label. You know, I got Says in touch with one of my pen palts, Mike Varney, who lived in Novato, California. And, um, and he didn't want to license his product and he only wanted to export his vinyl, you know, and I talked so long to him, you know, to put the stuff out on Roadrunner until Says got the license for, um, for Europe and Japan for his stuff. So uh, I'm just just talking to the guys. Brian Slagle was a pen pal of mine when he didn't even have a label. He had a um, um, heavy metal review. He had a magazine called Heavy Metal Review. So I, I knew most of those people. Masaito, you know, he stayed at my place when I was doing shows because he wanted to see some festivals here So in, in 82, 83. Brian Slagle also, you know, uh, slept on my couch when he had a meeting later that week with Says in Amsterdam. So they were just friends of mine I was I was work, you know dealing with and helping him and get in touch with Say so all that stuff came out. So I didn't sign I didn't sign a lot of bands. I just made contacts and you know I let him sort it out. Mm. Mm. So and I did that when I just was working in magazine, get in touch with all those bands. I mean the first Merciful Fate EP was recorded here around the corner in Rosendahl, uh on Ravon Records, a label, you know, that the first record was a compilation Art truck record we put out. Uh, one of the, the two guys running the label was one of my writers, or one that started Art truck with me. So mm. it was always a close connection with all that kind of stuff, but not as an – I mean, years later I heard this is a job, it's called A&R manager, and then I started to work. and I, I mean, I moved into the, the Roadrunner office working there, uh, physically was in eighty six, eighty seven. Before that, I visited their offices once a week, you know, and gave them tips who to sign or how to get in touch with certain people. But not as an AR manager, just as a hard rock fan who, who wanted to get their stuff out in Europe. Yeah. So that's right. uh, that's how a lot of those contacts happened. say's so never knew who Mike Varney was.
0: Yeah,
1: yeah. That's the he's missing one. Stealer. <laughs> yeah. Right? You probably wanted the band Steeler because they were really huge. Well, Well, um, I started
3: with uh, Exciting, Heavy Metal Maniac. That was the first one.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
2: Um, Steeler was, um, I mean, Mike Farney had a, he was writing a column in um, Guitar Magazine or something like that, or I'm not sure what it's called, Guitar Player or just Guitar World, I think it is, in America.
1: He worked There's a lately. lot of them. There's Guitar World, Guitar yeah. Player, you know. This and
2: job. since 1980, I was in, in touch with a guy called Johan Lunerbeck. He sent me cassettes when he was jamming in Sweden with bands like Heavy Load and Silver Mountain. And uh, Mike funny was looking for a guitar player for his band Steeler. So I sent him a cassette of the the blues and the demos and the jams he made in the, the basement in his mother's house and then he changed his name to Enve Melstein and my first job okay. as the A manager or A&R manager I tried to sign Enve for Roadrunner but and uh, because uh, the uh, the first solo or the Ingve Malmsteen's rising force. The first record was only released in Japan on Polydor, and nobody else wanted to have Ingve. Uh, so I talked so long to um, Sage Wessels until he made a great offer to sign Ingve for the rest of the world. And with Polydor Japan, they went with this offer in their hand and showed it to all the other affiliate co- uh, companies around the world. And then Polydor released the Ingve Malmsteen record worldwide because we made a too big offer for him. Wow. So there's an Ingrid Mountain story for you.
0: That's good. <laughs> Steve, what was your experience with Alan Becker?
1: Well, Alan was our main, the main contact at Important, which owned Relativity and Combat, yeah. and yeah. they were our distributor. So I would go over there pretty much once a week and meet with him and Howie Gabriel and those guys pitching our early releases. I think the first thing we did was that Christmas record that King Diamond put out. I don't know why. I can't remember the name of it. it was it 12? No day. presents for Christmas? <laughs> yes. That was the first one. And then there was Whiplash, Carnivore. And then we, there were some records that were in Europe that they distributed to Venom. And I can't, you know, this is a while ago. But my job most, mostly was to try to hype up the sales staff. It was a pretty interesting place to go to. I uh, Alan's a great guy, though. I really like Alan a lot. He was a really good guy. Have you seen this? This
2: was the original cover um, that was for the first, for the Melissa record of Merciful Fate, but uh, they they chose a different artwork instead. So this was how the Melissa record would have been if it wasn't rejected by somebody. I don't know who rejected it, but this was the wow. original... This that wasn't released was this way.
4: That was the Brussels band, right?
1: They're from Copenhagen, Marshall oh. fame. Okay. <clears throat> to answer your question further, I, before I worked at Roadrunner, I was at Enigma Records for three years, you know, and um, four years, something like that. And we were distributing Metal Blade at that time. They went through us. That's how I knew, got to meet Slagle back in, like, '84. 83 around that time and that in in relativity uh important distribution was one of our big east coast distributors it was like jam important dutch east and then on the west coast we had green world you know so those were our distributors and that's when i first met alan becker so when i got hired by roadrunner it was only natural that I could go over there. They all knew me already. And right. case knew that, that probably had something to do with him hiring me. Probably he, he knew I knew all those guys, and they were our distributor.
0: Yeah, it's, um, it's interesting when I was speaking to Alan about that period. He, he speaks with a lot of reverence because it was a real emerging thing because this is like, by, by your time, Steve, it was immediately post Heavy Metal Parking Lot, and it was a thing. But prior to that point, it was just the grind of trying to identify what was good music and therefore trying to distribute it properly and knowing what to do with it. Um, Speaking on that sort of front, Ed, did you ever feel that once uh, Case had leaned into metal, did you ever think there was, like, a learning curve as to how to deal with it in terms of, like, dealing with them as artists and as products? Or was it fairly straightforward?
3: No, no. No, it was not straightforward. I think it just grew, you know, once he picked up on, on that market, you know, opening it with market. I think it was all down to opportunities, making sure they could tour, uh, you know, the magazines would write about them. And then I think, as I told you last time, King Diamond was probably the first big commercial success mm. commercial for King Diamond. And I think if you look on, on, on those records, you know, the videos, the artwork, the photo sessions, um, you know, then he went full out. Because in the end, success uh, was a driver for him.
0: Yeah, yeah. Did your day-to-day role in in the label, did that sort of like feel different once the US office opened and once all the international pockets started opening up? Did it feel like this is far bigger than, than what I originally signed up for?
3: What do, you, what do you mean? C- case no, I
0: mean, anyway? f- f- no f- as in for you, you going into the Amsterdam office every day, day in, day out, pushing bands, doing the distribution side and taking on many roles within the label. So when the American office opens up, the German office opens up and the UK office opens up, that also within the span of, I believe, like maybe 18 months, two years, does your world feel a lot bigger at that point? Or is the is the day-to-day still kind of the same oh, for you can you quantify it no
3: of course it felt it felt bigger but that's because you get more releases you get more hands there were quite a lot of releases as we spoke about previously mm. but, um, and then I did uh, I did a lot of European uh, PR work from, from the Amsterdam office with Germany you know with Italians, with Spanish the German office was a help and then the UK office came in you know it's, it's, like, it's like satellite marketing offices I, I would say initially they also the A and R function, but I don't think a lot of the A and R came from those offices, from the German office, maybe. You know, that's where Mad Max came in and maybe another band. Um, but definitely it, it, it went bigger and bigger, but I think it felt more bigger, not with the offices, but it felt bigger with the artists. Because at some point, you know, there was one big uh, release a year, mm. and suddenly there, there there were two or three you know, and later there were maybe 12 big records a year. And I think that that's how how we experienced the growth or the big, let's say the size of the company. Yeah. You can do a lot, but if they let's say, if they don't reach as far, but if they really reach far, you know, you cannot open any magazine or they're there again. You know, that's, uh, that's when you, and you obviously the touring, you know, if, they, if mm-hmm. they open up on a festival or if they headline, you know, the the growth of the band was also the growth of the label. of Yeah. That's, the office didn't really play a role in there for me, for that feeling. Yeah. One
0: thing that was, um, I've, in terms of like trying to research this early foundational phase, I think I've done quite well on a lot of like the tangible aspects. I feel like I know where the name Roadrunner comes from. I feel I know enough about Case's backstory. I know like a bit about the wider industry that was kind of informed his business strategy. But one thing I can't figure out is who designed the logo. Dennis um, Dennis made a, um, a comment the other day that it might have been the same person that handled the early artwork. So when Mike just yeah. showed
3: up for early Melissa, um, I can see I can see the guy's face. I just cannot remember his name. Is it Thomas Home? No, no. I believe this, I believe this to be a Dutch guy. Yeah. The, only, the only thing I remember, the only thing I remember from it from this guy is the... I know what he looks like. Just cannot get to his name. But he had a beautiful blonde daughter. Yeah. And he was—he was, you know, he didn't look any, anywhere anywhere close to his daughter. So once I asked him, once I asked him, they "Like, how the hell does an ugly guy like you?" So the daughter was beautiful as that. And he says, "You know what?" So when you come, you just scream very loud. So, <laughs> and I was like, so I never forgot it, but <laughs> yeah he was a good guy but I just I cannot remember his name he was a Dutch guy and I think in the beginning he did all the logos until I think at some point you know that the bills became too high and then that's when case uh, switched Mm. Mm. okay Jan his name was his name was also Jan I think but I don't know his last name yeah I I cannot recall you must know him Dennis I'm pretty sure
4: yeah I know him I know him because I, I had to deal with him in the beginning
3: yeah yeah
0: Lost to the sands of time for now, I think. Then, possibly. will come back. Yeah, yeah. I, I
4: cannot recall his name. I,
3: I, I know. Email yeah. if you? Do. I'll try and track him down. I, I think I know. I think it's van Uden, Jan van Uden. Jan van Uden. Right. Does it ring a bell, Dennis? Yes, that's that's exactly him. All
4: oh. right. No. How do you yeah. spell
0: Uden? Jan van Uden. U D E N. Uden, sorry. Jan van
1: Uden. Jan van Uden, yep. O-D-I-N. They were an L.A. metal band. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) I
0: thought, thought, wasn't it? Jan van Uden, yeah. Yeah. I'm going to try and track this guy down. I could not find um, uh, Louis. Louis Dobbelaar? No? Couldn't find him anywhere. Hmm. He lives near Narden. I think my efforts were somewhat diverted by the fact that there's a famous golfer with the same name. <laughs> he doesn't play golf. He was too drunk for that all the time. <laughs> He's got to be
1: the guy that I went to the Red Lake District with every night. <laughs> oh, definitely. Definitely. Remember definitely. His name.
3: Steve, most definitely. You know, <laughs> I, I was there with you too, but, but Louis, most definitely. You know, he, uh, he, he knew everything.
0: All right, guy, i I said that I'd keep you for an hour. I didn't want to drag you out any further than that. So I think we should go around the room and if you can, if you can recall your favourite case or roadrunner related story, and then we can sign it off and you can continue with your, your days and nights. Let's start with you, Steve. I figures you would start with me. You're at the top um, left on my screen, mate. It makes sense. Well,
1: I can't remember Case smiling very often the whole time I knew him. He was very grumpy. and uh, But but he did smile when we had that great cat press party <laughs> because it was such a crazy – everybody in the entire New York metal scene was there, and people were like, what the fuck is going on? And Bob Groon's here taking pictures, and Case managed to let out a couple smiles. I mean – he, when he fired me, he was actually very nice. He wasn't smiling, but he was really nice. He let me stay for an extra month, you know, after he fired me. He paid me for an extra month. And uh, I mean, he was a really, uh, I can't say he was a very personable guy. You know what I mean? I wouldn't say he was personal. He's very intelligent, but he, he wasn't funny, or he didn't joke around. He was very serious. But these guys probably know him a lot longer than I did. I only knew him for a year. They, they, you, they probably could tell you a lot more. Yeah, I go Sorry. back with forty-eight years? How many times did you see him smile?
4: <laughs> yeah, well, I, you know, I, of course, I, um, I, I know K's a long time, and, um, and also. We used to go on holidays together to the front, to France, to the Dordogne, you know, and all that. And uh, yeah, you know, he has he has he has humor for sure, but uh, not during his work for sure. During during office hours, he was always very serious, very serious. <laughs> He's always in grey or in blue or in black. <laughs>
0: uh, very. I wanna ask you what your favorite roadrunner story is given I think you said you were there for about thirteen, fourteen months, but I bet you yeah, any money is your nylon. Favorite,
4: my favorite story of roadrunner with case case story, right? Hmm. Is um again I told you about the whorehouse with RCA. <laughs> <laughs> RCA Records. Yeah. I started yeah. RCA Records and <laughs> well, I, I don't know whether the other I told you the story, not the other guys.
0: Yeah, I've only so, just cut into the video so they don't know this. Yeah.
4: Anyway, Case uh, uh, Ke- um, called me up uh, one day. He says, uh, I-, I think I've got an office for RCA. I said, okay, well, i come to Amsterdam and see where, where it is. So um, then he says, yeah, well, it's not too far away. Come, we walk out from from his uh, home in the uh, whatever st- street it was. Willem's Parkweg. Yeah, Willem's Parkweg. One, two, three, or so, something. Correct. And, and then we walked over. He says, I said, Are we going by car? No, no, no. We walk over. It's not too far away, 20 minutes. And he shows me a building that I know uh, to be a whorehouse because I used to take artists and also as a record company guys there when they were. <laughs> And I said, "Are you sure case this is this is a whorehouse i mean i've been I've been here many, many times with artists and with guys that came over to empty, yeah, yeah, yeah. but it's not not anymore, not any longer now it's r c a Bellex, and <laughs> and the funny part of all, and that is what I like the most is the 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 receptionist downstairs had to open the door many times to Japanese clients who were who wanted to go up to the second floor, or to the third floor, <laughs> to go for a fuck, <laughs> and uh, we all and we have to ex- we had to explain to these guys. Sorry, mate, it's not a whorehouse anymore. <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's RCA Benelux. That's, that's I will never forget that story. And this typical case. I said, are yeah. you sure, case? Are you sure? Yeah, 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 yeah. there's a good building. It's a nice building. It's okay. Let's, let's go. Let's
0: do this. <laughs> <laughs> go on then, Mike. Share uh, your, your favorite. It's going to be difficult for you because you've got effectively like 12 years of indirect work. Yeah, I'm, I don't know. I mean, I know says always enjoyed it when he took
2: people out to his Korean restaurant close to the office and then ordering some food where he already in advance knew they were sweating out of all their old pores because it was so spicy. And he really was laughing inside himself to see those other people die at the other side of the table. Uh, that was his main fun, fun thing he did. Uh, I had a, when I walked once into the office, I think in 1986 and I had a puppy dog with me and he wasn't really uh, well-trained yet. So he took a big dump right under the chair of where Seis was sitting. And uh, it was a new carpet, but it, it, the smell was horrible. And um, for the next 15 years or so, whenever I saw Say's, he was asking how my dog was doing. <laughs> that was his first question. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, I mean, it's not really a road runner related story, but it's, it's a true one. one.
0: It's a good but one. It's a true one. <laughs> and go on, and you can round us
3: off. All right, my memory is a little slow in getting, uh, you know, funny story from case I must say, you know, he, he's very witty. He's very funny. Um, he is definitely, you know, totally. It could be very, very funny. You know, it could be very tough, and then obviously yeah, I would say there was always something untouchable, right, so you could, you could never get too close, there was always a, uh, the untouchable one, but he was very funny, you know, in the office he could make really good jokes, and I remember, I cannot remember, I was just trying to figure out who this was, but there was somebody uh, who had case on the phone, and uh, I don't know if it was Jan, it could have been Jan, or it could have been uh, anybody, uh, I think, that, that he worked with, and he didn't know that it was the guy's birthday, and at some point at the phone conversation, the guy said, uh, "Well, you know, uh, today's my birthday so case went up in the room where I was, and uh, we had a we had a, a, a fax machine was the hip shit at that time, and he faxed the guy you know in a hundred uh hundred guilders bill you know, and I thought it was pretty funny <laughs> he got the fax of 100, but it's a fax of course, but it's just the kind of kind of humor it was always a little bit in, in the witty and uh, the witty uh, side you know more um How would I say? He liked... liked, um, Dry. Intellectual jokes,
0: you know? Uh, Facts, you too. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Well, thanks very much, guys. I mean, um, so obviously this, for me, this project for the last four months has been rather grueling and it's been quite... I've been drawing blood from a stone in terms of, like, getting some tangible, researchable, you know, um, things because the British Library's behind me, but it's closed and it will be until late june or something like that but you all contributed uh, a great deal to the project so i'm very 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 grateful for that and obviously for you guys it's like it was part of life it was part of just going into working every day and doing doing things for metal but for someone who was born no disrespects good 30 years after maybe uh, after you guys it's my relationship with it is completely different so the, the the fight that i'm trying to fight at the minute is how do we combat the oversaturation of of music these days and give metal a a seat at the table. And a thing to understand about Roadrunner, and I say this in in all our chats, they did something special. I don't articulate it, but the articulation is simply the case managed to take a fringe thing, a fringe genre and went toe to toe with the majors and toe to toe with all the biggest acts in the world. I mean, like while Simon Cowell was on the rise, there's nine nine nut jobs in jumpsuits selling platinum records. And that's unheard of. Um, Mm -hmm. And it's been unheard of since. So, for me, the task of reverse engineering that and trying to realize what makes it special is pretty important and I want to thank you all for contributing
3: Well, I think well, you do quite an amazing job uh, Jim. It takes a lot yeah. of work and I think <laughs> you, have a very, you know you have a better knowledge and than, than, uh, than us all together individually
0: i mean the difficulty thing, the difficult thing is with There's three people I've been avoiding. And one's Case, obviously, I didn't think he'd be interested. Another one's Monty. And another one is Doug, because they've been there the longest and they have probably the most comprehensive knowledge of what happens 87 onwards, which is when the the real fight kind of starts in in a weird way. Um, And the reason I'm avoiding them is simply because I'm having too much fun piecing it together from you know trying to drag people from fucking indonesia to tell me about <laughs> the nylons you know what i mean it's more fun than asking monty what he was doing in december 1987 you know what i mean it's it's loads more fun this way but unfortunately i'm 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 probably going to have to start knocking on a few doors and um and trying to understand some of the things only they'll know and that might be a difficult conversation
3: but we'll monty has a trem- monty has a tremendous knowledge and I think in the in the whole success of Roadrunner, in, in let's say in the second part of it, when it became very very big, he plays a very big role. And at the same time, you know, when he brought the bands, the innovative bands, uh, that's where that's where case the market here, you know, was shining because I think mm-hmm. that's where it was at his strongest. You know, and I think at yeah. the beginning, just the market wasn't ready for for bands uh, the size of the of the bands from the 90s. You know, it just wasn't ready early 80s yet. Yeah, but the foundation mm-hmm. was laid and Case wanted Case wanted to contribute because he was intrigued. He told me by what the label means to people out there still today, because for him, uh, it, it never felt like he was doing something special or that the company was any special or, you know, it just didn't. But but I think that's your daily life and, and mm-hmm. inside is always different than outside. You know, outside is a little bit more glamorous than, than inside, I guess, but yeah. Um, you know, one of the slogans that he had in the '90s was breaking barriers, and I think that's exactly what he did with the mm-hmm. company. You know, he just brought metal to the masses. Maybe it's not the right, it's not the right you know description for an independent uh, label, but it, that's what happened. And I yeah. just I just I just think those bands became uh, so good, uh, you know, that they could reach masses masses. And he yeah, just opened I mean- the door.
0: There's there's, two, there's now, in my head, as I'm trying to plan out this next stage, there's like, there's two stories, right? And there's one, which is how the label interfaced with the markets and really brought that that value to those fringe, that fringe genre and empowered people like me as a metalhead. Um, but the other story is just that, that part of it, like Case didn't realize how much it meant to people. And everyone who worked with Roadrunner has a real reverence for Case and real reverence for what was happening which is something you don't see a lot from any workforce these days. Um, but the problem with that side of the story is it's so key to how it played its role with the markets. But that's not my story to tell at all. It's it's kind of disingenuous for me, someone who wasn't there, to say, we all loved working at Roadrunner because X, Y, and Z. It's, mm-hmm. it's difficult to navigate. It becomes a lot more delicate. Um, and I think maybe that's... If I if I if I tread incorrectly, there might, might be some bridges burnt and some upset people. But I'm willing to take that risk to understand that end to end story. I don't know if I was rambling on a bit there, but I think you know what I mean like your your relationship with Case and with the label and going into work every day is a lot different from me. Yeah, I have to talk about it; otherwise, it kind of makes no
3: sense. I, th- I think that one of the things you know that, that maybe wasn't around at the time when Roadrunner started is that a lot of the metal labels. Still probably still today, because that's how independent labels start, is somebody who just, you know, finds a band, loves it, nobody wants to do anything for it, so they start a label. Mm-hmm. It's always fan driven. And I think this is where the difference is, because Cage is not a fan. You know, he was a he was a guy you he know, he's a guy who just you know, as Dennis said, a very intelligent or Steve said a very intelligent guy, smart, yep. you know, out to prove a point, to build a market, to build a company, and to just, you know, um I think what he learned in the 70s, and then his few built wrote on And I think at that time, uh, nothing, nothing against any of the other independent labels. I think uh, as as a record company guy, Case was just miles ahead of mm-hmm. the other metal labels at that time because they still need to figure out because they just were starting out in the music industry, and Case was already, you know, a very experienced uh, man in the music industry on a mission, uh, very focused. You know, Louis yeah. and Louis and I, if somebody. Thomas Benz was out on the road. There was a band on tour in Germany and they said like, well, you know, we have our record out and we went in the record store and we couldn't find it. And such a remark, you know, somebody can say, well, well, you know, um, can happen. But The case was, you know, that, that those things triggered case. And within two or three months, uh, Louis and I were out in Germany in, in specific cities and, and targeting record stores and checking how many of the releases were actually in the stores so, and I think it's those details now that make a lot of difference because if we couldn't find it, he would go to the distributor and realizing it was probably not the right distributor and make a move, you know, so it was always very business driven and, and not fan driven. And I think that just, uh, you know, yeah. I think in the end just made roadrunner, roadrunner because a guy, a captain like that, you know, you need a captain like that to, <laughs> to bring the ship to sea and uh, you know, go to the destination.
4: Yeah. But he also turned around Phonogram International, for sure. When he started working in, at Phonogram International, I, I always thought Phonogram International was a dull, grey, nothing office. I mean, until Case came there. And Case started to sign uh, labels, independent producers, uh, bands, and all that sort of stuff. I mean, before that, nothing happened in Byron, for sure, Nothing. Yeah, and and when Case became involved in Phonogram International, he he started to work with um, with Phonogram UK, sano Place producers, mm. and that turned around everything at Phonogram. Yeah, yeah. Mm. I and I about- I, must, I must admit when I came to work for Phonogram. Foniger Amsterdam was the same. It was all dull, nothing, totally grey. I mean, um, a guy called uh, I. I used to work with a guy called Jaap pointing He was like fifty-five years old. He was more in classical music than in pop music, and that's why they they hired me. Mm.
2: And it was. was there, were there offices at the uh, Whistle Lord Studios? Was
4: that the one? No. Uh, uh, yeah, Whistle Lord was. We moved from Amsterdam to Hilversum. And that was, we moved from the Drenthe Straat in, um, in, in Amsterdam near the Rye building to uh, the Wisselow Studios. Yeah, but, but Case worked in Baden in the head office. Okay. Uh, and there was a guy like Ben Bunders, for instance, Koos uh, de Coast of Fraser was the legal guy, and later Coast became the I think the RCA guy or the CBS. Honor. CBS, yeah, 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 Coast of Fraser, and that, yeah. that was the only basically. That's what right. guitar you have there, uh, uh, Ed, behind you?
0: Well, oh, this one. Sorry?
4: What what guitar you have there in the back, not oh. Eddie?
3: Oh, oh, uh, That's a piece of firewood. That's my very first guitar that I bought in the uh, when I was eleven or so, or twelve. <laughs> okay. <Wow. Yeah. laughs> Looks dangerous. <laughs> oh. I should look dangerous there, not the guitar. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, Jim. One last thing that just springs to mind is, is in when when this company was developing, you know, there was this battle with Jan and Case. And especially about young being a business guy you know uh on the money really good at it in case understanding that you need to spend money just to, to to get something and i remember when in one of their in one of their arguments young came down to Case's off the case's uh, desk and he just went like with a bill i think from the travel agencies like what's that you know you that's a business class ticket you know <laughs> they, yeah and he said, well, that's two and a half times the price. And he said, well, my flight was two and a half times as comfortable. You know, and end of discussion. <laughs> and, uh, later, and later, you yeah. know, Case would, when the success came, right, um, Case would buy two business class tickets. So he would have two chairs so nobody could sit next to him. <laughs> <You> know, so, <laughs> yeah. Just on the flight, he didn't want to have anybody ne- ne- next to him, just, you know, talking shit. <laughs> <laughs> Wow! But brilliant. he would all the time, you know. He he would fly back on on a Thursday evening and and uh, land at ten o'clock on uh, on Amsterdam Airport and be actually in the Amsterdam office at ten at ten thirty or ten forty, and just have a working day. Because I have no yeah. idea how, how he did it. You know, it's it summed him up. No, did you know, no you know, There was always something to do somewhere.
4: Ed, did you know that he was a he was a marathon runner?
3: No. I know. No, I know. He
4: he, he ran he won, really. Wow. Yeah. He Impressive. he participated in marathons very often. New York Marathon, London Marathon.
3: Wow. Yeah. He was uh, he was well, fanatic. What I'm saying is, yes, there's there's something rings in the back of my of my head about it. But you know, that takes discipline. So <laughs> I couldn't do yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine. Yeah.
0: yeah. Have any, is any, I'm going to give
3: the floor. The floor is open for any
0: other closing remarks before I, um, I ship you all. I, must, to I must
4: tell you, Jim, what I saw this morning on the video that the link that you sent me. I I really like what you do. It's very nice, and I admire you for that.
0: Thank you very much. I was really Great. anxious actually because I thought you were going to ask me to edit it again. <laughs> no, no, no. It's a,
4: I really. I I mean it. It's um. You know, it's a lot of work, and um, and the way you've done it. Great
1: stuff. I'll uh, echo I, that. You know. well, I will you, echo that as Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Ed.
3: I'm sorry, I just wanted to say to Dennis, like when uh, he, Steve said, you know, that when we went to Amsterdam, Louis was probably there. But I think before Louis was there, Dennis was the guy, right, to take the artists out. I'm pretty sure <laughs> there's <laughs> one or two good stories there, Dennis. Maybe, maybe. You <laughs> know, a but, I,
1: word, I, but I, he knew I, where the whorehouse was. So, I mean, come on.
3: <laughs> I, I think that's penis, you know. From all my years with Roadrunner, from all my years at Roadrunner, I've been out with many, many, many bands in Amsterdam. You know what the toughest one was ever—the ones that really uh, make me draw. The Nylans. Oh yeah, the metal bands were easy, but the Nylans were like a different level. (laughs) I'm pretty sure (laughs) Dennis (laughs) will know one of the things about it.
4: Enjoyed. I enjoyed being with the Nylans forever. I mean, it was it was such a great. You know. I I basically broke the band with Sonja Barrent, of course, yeah, 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 and and then we had this, we done this show in one of the biggest um, or the most popular gay clubs in Amsterdam yeah. uh, during the week that they were doing Sonja Barent. and um, we and and Kay said whatever it costs, just go and do it, you know, and um, uh, get bring them over. And Sonia broke the band basically, eh, because that, that show was like phenomenal. Eh? Yeah, you yeah. know that. And Sonia Barnes, show was. Uh, and I was lucky enough to know Sonia very well. And, 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 and I was really, yeah, I was pretty close with her uh, when it came to plugging, you know, to, to bringing her acts for the show. And uh, so when I showed her the video of the nylon, she was immediately sold. She said, "Do it right
3: away, no problem." I was once at a, at, with the Nylons. I had to go to a TV show too af- after they broke already. They were in Netherlands. Yeah, I had a nine-seater car because we had to go to the to the TV show. Yeah. And, hey, can we bring a few friends? Oh, sure. sure. So there's four of you. It's your manager me sick so yeah we got three seats we ended <laughs> up with we ended up with 13 guys in the car one smelling better than the others and one guy hunting me for the next three weeks on on the phone call in the amsterdam office if i wanted to come and, and look a video with him in the evening no and he would try again <laughs> two days later you sure yes you know still don't want to come <laughs> but they were a really fun fun band you know a lot of uh <laughs> they, were great,
4: they were a great band I remember we, would, we were going to Amsterdam for Queen's birthday, right? The 30th of April, Koninginedag. And um, we were walking the streets and all of a sudden, um, uh, one of the guys uh, started to moon. So it puts down his pants. And <laughs> I still have a picture here.
1: my <laughs> <laughs> Jim, I think you need to do a whole documentary on the nylons because all I can tell you is once a girl made me put a pair of nylons
0: on, that's the extent of my uh, nylons experience. Sorry. At 4.30 this morning, um, Dennis sent me a, a picture of his gold record, which is a a gold record for the nylons. <laughs> yeah. So interesting. Yeah, very interesting.
4: Very successful with them, for sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah. good I remember flying over to Toronto to see their show because I didn't know what the show was all about because uh, we we I had booked with Leon Ramarkers, um and with uh, Barry Fizzer uh, through Mojo we booked Caray for three nights and uh, and I thought we would never sell that out but, uh, but it's Leon's like
2: such a Dutch, uh, Royal Elmer Hall for the people who don't know what Caray is but, uh, and we sold out three nights. Boom! Albert's Hall, huh? Royal Albert Hall kind of building, you know, round 15 yeah. years a lot of seating going beautiful. around. Beautiful wow. old building.
4: Yeah, very beautiful. And we we sold out three nights. Impressive. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. what time
2: is it here?
3: Yeah, <laughs>
2: time to go get some food. Hey Ed, do I see you tomorrow?
3: yeah yeah I'll let you know tomorrow I can I kindle Nate yes okay <laughs> right, good seeing then. you um, guys thanks yeah. a lot yeah. uh, Thank listen you. to Twisted I'm um, sorry
0: Blowing Smoke with Twisted Rico buy Marty Friedman's new record buy Dennis's art subscribe to Art Shock uh, the documentary goes out 24 hours from now on YouTube this will go up on Saturday It's like a little reunion um, I'll probably edit a couple of things out but we'll see but thanks very much guys see yeah. uh, you bye
3: um, Dan all right, guys, bye bye. Take care.